This is InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. Here's what's happening on this week's show. Being disabled as a child or adult isn't the end of the world, especially if you have support along the way. We'll hear from an occupational therapist who managed a successful 30-year career despite having near-total blindness. It's like taking a detour. Your life is no longer the way it was, but you do your best to get back on the path and get to your destination. Then, if you've noticed a significant increase in fraudulent schemes lately, you'd be right. An expert explains the factors causing the jump in fraud. Some of the bigger incidents of scamming have involved getting smarter about what people recognize as fraud. Those two stories and more are ahead on this week's Info Track. Stick around. The show begins right after this. Info Track. The weekly show with information you should know. Here's your host, Chris Whitting. Parents with young children may sometimes notice their child isn't talking yet or hasn't taken their first steps. The parents request a medical diagnosis and learn their child has a disability. How common is this and what are the next steps to take? Our next guest is Columbia University occupational therapist Penny Mishkin, author of the book, How I See It, A Personal and Historical View of Disability. Penny, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. How common are childhood disabilities, and in what ways can these children be affected? It's a very interesting question. One of the ways I like to put it with parents who are very scared when they get a medical diagnosis is that some children start behind the starting line. Some of us start right at the starting line, and then there are the precocious kids who start ahead of the starting line. And it doesn't matter where you started, what really matters is where you finish. And that if you support your child and you provide them with the services they need, children do very, very well. Now, there may be exceptions to this. You know, if they're not walking, the diagnosis could be a lot of things. But for the most part, the children I worked with, I even have family members who went through this. If they get the services, they do very, very well. And when they're older, you would never know they ever even had an issue. Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes there's residual parts of it. But there's just so much support and good therapy out there. And I considered it part of my job to help the parents understand it because most parents are very frightened when they see their child's developmental milestones aren't right on track. Well, you are a living example of not letting disability be limiting. You lost much of your eyesight, I guess, yet you earned a master's degree from Columbia University and a 30-year career in occupational therapy private practice. What would you want people to know about what it's like living with a disability? That it's not so bad. I was very frightened of seeing the way I see now. And I didn't know if I could handle it. And the way I've come to view it is, you know, whether you're in a car accident, whether you were born with it, whether you acquire it, it's like taking a detour. Your life is no longer the way it was. But you do your best to get back on the path and get to your destination. And the way I view it is the destination is living a purposeful, meaningful, and happy life. 
So what I would advise anyone is you have the ability to choose happy. And that's what I've done. It's harder, but it also gives me, oh my goodness, I get so many compliments. There's so many people who admire me, not that I think I really deserve it. But it's a different life, but it can be just as wonderful a life. And that's your choice. That's really up to you. By the way, just as an aside, I never would have been on a radio interview or written a book if I hadn't lost my vision. So that's what I mean by a detour. And I'm just doing different things to make myself happy. Would you say it's more common that people maybe have a victim kind of mentality around it? Or are most people able to overcome that? What I found is initially, most people do have a victim feeling about this. And they are a victim. That's actually really true. The problem is there's a difference between being a victim and living in victimhood. And if you live in victimhood, you're miserable. You just feel sorry for yourself. You can alienate other people. You make it harder for your loved ones. And you have this choice to choose not to live in victimhood. And that's what I've done. And quite honestly, this surprises me and will probably surprise your audience. My life is very different than it was three years ago when I really went almost completely blind. I mean, I still have some light perception, but I can't go anywhere myself. I can't read anything. You know, I'm very limited. And my life today is just as happy, just as wonderful, and in some ways even happier and more wonderful than it was three years ago. That's terrific. And I've seen that with other people. In other words, I'm not that unusual when I was a student at a rehabilitation center. Again, there is a process to go through. You have to grieve what you lost. But there was so much laughter that would come out of our clinic. A sense of humor goes a long way to help you not feel like a victim. And it is remarkable, but I would say that those living in victimhood are closer to the exception and not the rule. Our guest is Columbia University occupational therapist Penny Mishkin, author of How I See It, A Personal and Historical View of Disability. Just from the book title, talk about the historic aspects of disability. When I was growing up in the 50s, people with disabilities were hidden. And this may shock you and everyone listening, Starting in 1857, this country had ugly laws. And what that meant was if you had a disability, you were too ugly to go outside because it might bother the non-disabled population. I mean, I was horrified when I learned that. And that lasted, believe it or not, till 1974 in some states. And even with the American with Disabilities Act, until that was passed in 1990, a restaurant could refuse to serve a disabled person. And then the the ADA changed it. So basically, people with disabilities were hidden. There were no services. I grew up feeling very ashamed because I had a disability. And I mean, I think every child feels a little bit of that, but there's so much support so that they don't stay there. And you really were considered a victim. And there were no services offered to you. How was it going through the educational system as a youngster with a disability? It's interesting. All right, so I have to explain something. Without eyeglasses or contact lenses, I saw pretty much the way I see now. I couldn't, if my eyes were tested, I didn't even know there was an eye chart there. That's how bad it was. 
But glasses did correct me to 2100, which with my determination and my efforts made me seem not disabled. I was determined to do everything everyone else did. And I've asked, I have a couple of friends, one is from sixth grade, one is from seventh grade. They didn't view me as disabled. And the other reason for that is I really went out of my way to hide it because it was embarrassing. That's how it was viewed then. That isn't the case, obviously, with someone who's in a wheelchair, you know, with certain disabilities. So I actually passed into the able world till I was about 60. It's not that I was completely able, but I hit it. And it was what I call an invisible disability. There are many like that. So something like ADHD, something like not being able to read, and having dyslexia, I mean, the only time someone would know you had it is if they asked you to read. And otherwise, you look like anyone else. And also, most children do go out of their way to hide it. I don't believe I was unusual in that regard. Because there's still, even with all the advancements we have made, I think there still is, initially anyway, a certain amount of shame that people feel about having a disability and needing help. Oh, and that's really the key, the needing help, because our culture prizes independence and sees asking for help as a weakness. And I turn that around. I think asking for help is a strength because it allows you to stay out of victimhood. For someone who is listening who perhaps doesn't know anybody with a disability, what would you say to them maybe to open their eyes a little bit? Okay, because I've experienced this in New York City, in Manhattan, where I've said excuse me to someone because I'm afraid I'm going to bump into them because of my poor vision. It doesn't happen very often, and they'll say, well, you have plenty of room, or why don't you go around me? Okay, so that's exactly what you're not supposed to do. (laughs) So I find that it's up to me to let somebody know what I need. And 99% of people will be happy to supply it. I once had a time where I needed someone. This was when I saw better than I see now, but it had rained torrentially and there were all these puddles and stuff. And I was afraid of falling because I just wasn't seeing the depth. I wasn't seeing aspects of it. And I just stopped someone and asked them to help me. Would they let me hold on to them while I crossed the street or something like that? And most people are delighted to do it. Every now and then you come across someone who doesn't want to help you. But they're the exception, they're not the rule. The other thing that helps me is my sense of humor. So I put people at comfort. You know, if I'm laughing about it, they don't have to worry so much about what they do. Penny Mishkin, Columbia University occupational therapist and author of the book, How I See It, A Personal and Historical View of Disability. Penny, this was great. We want to thank you for joining us today. Oh, I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Next, the rise of consumer scams and frauds. That story, coming up. Stick around. There's more InfoTrack straight ahead. 